Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, June 14th, 2011. Now, I've been doing my light editions of Fighting for the Faith on Tuesdays or uh, Tuesdays or Wednesdays for a while, and that's going to continue today. We're going to finish part four of uh, our series on the history of pietism. There's stuff in these lectures that you've got to have foundationally understood in order to, well, to know what's happening in in the next few weeks on Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and, uh, well, we do the politically incorrect work of walking through what people are saying and say, well, is that what the Bible says, yes or no? And we name names. We let pe- let you hear the false teachers in their own words with their own names. We don't try to hide any of that stuff. We step on toes, but it's really all about uh, doing discernment and comparing what's going on out there. You know, people, and especially pastors, do not have a right to twist God's word and say things about it that, well, it doesn't say. No man has that right. Anyway, <clears throat> like I've been saying at the beginning of the program, we're gonna we're gonna work through uh, you know part four of our lecture on the history of Pietism. There's stuff in here that I I want you all to know uh, because I'm gonna be referring back to it because I think uh, Dr. Van uh, Dana Van Voorhis here he's got, he's got his finger on the right things. And uh, and uh, the the idea here is is that many what we're seeing in the United States in American evangelicalism actually has its roots in Lutheran Pietism of all things. It is true. So uh, anyway, without any further ado, here is part four of the lecture on the history of Pietism, Doctor uh, Van Vor, uh, Van Voorhis, and uh, here we go. Uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get started. Uh, just so you know. Um... This is the fourth of four, uh, a four-part series uh, on pietism. Um, They will at some point. The first one is online at faithcapital.com. The other three will eventually be up on there. Um, And as we'll see today, while this is the end of our study of pietism, as we get right up to about the 1900s, there's a perfect tie-in to August when we talk about American evangelicalism. Um, and a four-week uh, series on that, which 
uh, is uh, interesting stuff. So um, am I turned on, Scott? Yep. All right. Hey, let's start. Today is entitled Lutheranism in America, Muhlenberg, the Radical Pietists, and the Growth of Apocalypticism. And I knew one of the pastors would beat me to it, but either Harold Camping was wrong or none of us made the cut. And it could be the case. I saw the standards that he had for who would be raptured, and I don't think many Lutherans uh, fit it. So maybe if we drive around some truly spiritual churches, truly spiritual churches, those are, are empty. Now, I don't just bring up camping because it's a timely story. In fact, there is a convergence in this. And in his albeit radical aberrations, and also with pietism in America. As we finish up today our brief look at Lutheran pietism, we will see the convergence of a German phenomenon in the 17th and 18th century make its way across the Atlantic into America, where it would fuse with the nascent American evangelical movement with its stresses on moral guidelines, a peculiar eschatology or doctrine of the end times, and the delineation that marks true Christianity. In other words, we're going to see a very, very uh, close parallel between what we've seen in this German phenomenon of pietism with Spainer and Franca and American evangelicalism. I came across this quote uh, quite recently from Mark Knoll. Mark Knoll is a very distinguished uh, church historian at the University of Notre Dame. I recommend a lot of what he's written. Mark Knoll says this, The origins of American evangelicalism are now understood to lie not in Puritanism or frontier revivals, but in 17th century Lutheran pietism. While Lutherans are blamed for many things, uh, this is a new one, something new that we've been charged of. One commentator that I was also reading a few weeks ago uh, on the emergent church, which we'll talk about in August, has claimed that it, the emergent church, is nothing more than postmodern pietism. And so that's something that we'll be looking at uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, uh, in August. So our look at the growth of pietism is not just an intellectual historical exercise, but helps us make sense of the American church today. Now, a word of warning, and hopefully not about today's class, but in general. The lack of historical studies on Lutheranism, uh, and especially pietism in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, 17th and 18th century in particular, has left this field relatively uncharted. To those who have written on the subject, uh, for those, uh, they've tended to be extremely partisan, such that their studies look less like history and more like theological polemics. They don't look like historical narrative storytelling. And there is no greater sin for a historian than to not tell a story and to be boring. This is not to say that what I have been teaching and what I will continue to teach is not judgment-free. In fact, I believe it is the duty of the historian to judge, but only after the sources, facts, and narratives have been presented. Nevertheless, American Lutheranism, a strange hybrid of orthodoxy and pietism, can put anyone to sleep. 
I have on the yellow sheets that I passed out that have been handed out, um, at the bottom there's another bibliography. Uh, last week I gave a few other books. Uh, these are probably the best works on, in this field. They're not perfect. There are a few that are, are, have various slants towards uh, liberalism or modernism, uh, but I, I would recommend those if you're looking for um, a good narrative on this topic. Today I'll be giving you a brief sketch of what occurred in the 18th and 19th centuries in America in the Lutheran Church. And it's more interesting than you think, and hopefully will shed light on their problems and open the path for our study later this summer. I want to start with two questions. The first question, is pietism even an appropriate designation after Spener and Franca? And two, how do we deal with the question of influence? And I'm going to explain that in just a minute. To answer the first, I made it clear in my first talk that pietism, historically speaking, is a 17th and 18th century movement in Germany. It had certain particular markers, and since the fall of Franca's Halle institutions, we might relegate the term to the dustbin of history. But their influence, in large part because of their vigorous teaching and evangelizing campaigns, have had a far-reaching influence. So if we might refrain from labeling anything or anyone today as a pietist, strictly, historically speaking, we can certainly see pietistic influences. Now, to the second question, the question of influence. Uh, this deserves much more time than I will give it. The basic question is this. Can we line up the thought and careers of Spener and Franca and draw a straight line up to the present-day church? The answer is no. First, the various themes we see in, in everyone post-Franca could be attributed to our natural inclination to mysticism, to individualism, experience over doctrine, and the self-inflated ego that believes itself uh, to be in a, uh, on a quest for an observable growth in holiness. So we can't pin the blame solely on a few German pietists. In fact, we can see these various inclinations towards mysticism and, and other things in people who have never even heard of Lutheran pietism. But the pietists did serve as an impetus, as we saw with Zinzendorf last week. He did mark a break from the Halle pietism of Franca. But he also broke with Wesley over the issue of Christian perfection. But as I mentioned last week, Post-Franca, uh, right, into the 18th century, what we will see as, a, as aberrations from a clearly defined historical orthodoxy are two things. Doctrinal indifference, along with an emphasis on personal experience and morals, and a desire for church unity, divorced from common theological ground. Puritanism, frontier revivalism, they don't necessarily fit that pattern. 
And if we can see the modern American evangelical church as being those two things, as, as, as uh, exuding uh, both a, a doctrinal indifference, an emphasis on morals and personal experience, and, and unity without common theological ground, that's not in Puritanism or Revivalism. That comes from pietism. By and large, the early Puritan churches cannot be charged with doctrinal indifference. These were the 120-proof Calvinists. And as far as union without a doctrinal foundation, ask the nonconformists in the Massachusetts Bay Colony how they fared. We cannot necessarily pin the peculiarities of modern evangelicalism on them. Nevertheless, for the history of American Lutheranism, last week and the week before, I made a comment. I said, American Lutheranism in the 18th century is neither American nor Lutheran. Let me qualify that statement. In the sense that it was not Lutheran. The early German settlers were by and large separatists. They were Moravians. They were Schwenkfelders. A whole bunch of of various groups that that we would not identify as, as Lutherans. Why then were they still were referred to as, as Lutherans then? Well, because they weren't Reformed or Anglican, and they were German. <laughs> and that's what Lutheran meant. It meant Germans we don't understand. That, that's what it meant in the 18th century. What's interesting, there was a fellow uh, named Benjamin Kurtz. Uh, in the 19th century. Uh, Benjamin Kurtz uh, was, was a sort of neo-pietist or had these uh, pietistic strains. And he uh, found a reformed pastor uh, named um, uh, John Nevin. And John Nevin, who was a, a very, uh, from what I can tell, well-read uh, reformed pastor, understood Lutheranism and went to Benjamin Kurtz, this sort of pietistic-ish um, Lutheran, and, said, and the Reformed pastor said to the pietist, I don't think you're a Lutheran. I, I was, why, why do you call yourself that? You're not one. And so when a Reformed pastor can call you out as not being Lutheran enough, you might want to consider what it is you believe. And secondly, these American Lutherans were not American in the sense that, well, they were German American also wasn't a common uh, term uh, in usage yet. And secondly, they remained somewhat aloof from the colonial causes uh, in both the French-Indian War uh, and in the War of American Independence. American Lutheranism is probably best represented later in the mid to late 19th century by those who established the Lutheran churches theologically aligned with the Book of Concord. Think Walther and those others that we have, I'm sure, we teach in Sunday school and the like. Since the days of William Penn, you're familiar with him, Pennsylvania was set up as a colony for religious dissenters. And with the strict city on a hill quasi-theocracy attempted by the early Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, this place of refuge for religious freedom was a good thing. The iron fist of William Bradford sent anyone suspected of nonconformity to the strict theological and moral codes of early Puritanism scrambling. 
and without the desire or money to travel back to the old world, a safe haven was needed, and that was Pennsylvania. But this safe haven would soon illuminate the problems of religious freedom, or at least unfettered religious freedom. It didn't just mean freedom from heavy-handed rules, but freedom from anything and everything. And thus Pennsylvania, in the 18th, 17th and 18th century, would serve as the incubator for later theological innovation and a break from historic Christianity. As we saw last week, Zinzendorf spent a good deal of time in Pennsylvania. He was actually trying to tame the wild Moravians, but also to set up a pan-confessional church. And as we saw last week with Zinzendorf, due to his particular theology, neither the Orthodox Lutherans nor the Pietists trusted him. But August Hermann Franke of Halle sent us a pastor to Pennsylvania to counteract what Zinzendorf was doing. And who was that pastor? Well, it was Heinrich Melchior Muhlenberg. If the trajectory of American Lutheranism or Lutheranism in America would eventually become uh, or come to be defined by a disengagement with American culture, the same cannot be said about Muhlenberg. Sent in 1742 to Pennsylvania, he would spend much of his time up all around the Northeast. Uh, He would minister to congregations of German immigrants, but also to Dutch and to Swedes. He was very involved in this early colonial culture. Furthermore, two of his sons you may have heard of. One son, Peter, would serve as a colonel under George Washington during the War of American Independence, and he would fight at Yorktown. Another of Muhlenberg's sons, Frederick, served on the First Continental Congress. He was the first to sign the Bill of Rights and was the first Speaker of the House of Representatives. And it was Frederick who proclaimed, the faster the Germans become Americans, the better it will be. And of course, there is the legend that he cast the decisive vote against German becoming the official language of the United States. I don't think that's true. I think someone made that up. But it's kind of a cool story. So let's pretend it's true. That's what I tell my students to do. Yet it is the elder Muhlenberg who looms large as the most significant figure in the Lutheran church until those 19th century old Lutheran immigrants to the Midwest. As I mentioned earlier, sober analysis of various characters in the Lutheran church in colonial America is sorely lacking. Muhlenberg was misunderstood not only by his contemporaries. The Hall of Fathers thought he was just the man to spread their brand of pietism as the antidote to Zinzendorf. But then others branded him as a uh, a slave to, to Lutheran orthodoxy. And if it was the case that he was that misunderstood then, imagine what it is today. Well, Zinzendorf, luckily, asked Muhlenberg to his face, are you a Hellenzian? That is, are you a pietist? And Muhlenberg gives us his answer. He says, no. Easy enough. Case closed. He stated that he was a Lutheran. 
But if we look at this very, very brief overview of his theology, uh, we find really no traces of historically defined pietism. Uh, one author writing in 1980, uh, I don't want to break a commandment, so I won't mention him, uh, calls Muhlenberg a pietist, one, be, simply because he was connected to Halle, and because he wrote a pamphlet that linked sanctification, or at least called sanctification, the living fruit of justification. That's okay. That's within the, uh, the, the uh, standards of Lutheran orthodoxy. But for this, he's labeled uh, a pietist. Also, this author takes Muhlenberg on for claiming that there should be spiritual awakenings. However, in Muhlenberg's uh, diaries, where he writes much of this, he mentions that these spiritual awakenings must always be linked to the external means of grace, not an inner word or enlightenment. And lastly, it's charged that he was a pietist. This is curious, that he, w- he was a pietist because he rejected state intervention in the church. Now, uh, amongst uh, many of the Orthodox, it was a sign, uh, or it was, it was something they would regularly do to have the state officially recognize their pastors. Uh, and so when some pietist groups broke away from the state churches in Germany, they were labeled as pietists. Uh, Muhlenberg in America wanted the church to break away from direct state intervention. And for this, this author, 19, late 20th century, uh, labels him a, a pietist. I, I think uh, it is uh, incorrect. Another claim about Muhlenberg that I just want to hit briefly is that he was a revivalist, something else that has come about uh, in, in a number of, uh, or at least two recent uh, works on him. This is maybe the most curious charge against him. One historian relates uh, the story of his relations with George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a revivalist. He was the kind of speaker, he'd go for two and a half hours, uh, the women would be fainting and crying, and it was a big, big to-do. Uh, this was Whitfield. And yes, he was friendly with Muhlenberg. Ergo, Muhlenberg revivalist. Uh, I'll talk to Professor Dean, but I believe that that is bad logic. Uh, These revivals, and this author calls Muhlenberg's meetings revivals. Here's the problem. They took place in a church within the context of liturgy, centered around the preached word, which Muhlenberg always said should be short. Sermon should be short, Muhlenberg says. Always centered around the law and the gospel and the sacraments. Some revivalist indeed. And then one more thing to mention about Muhlenberg is that he didn't write a systematic theology. Uh, He had pastoral concerns in the Northeast. He was overwhelmed uh, with these pastoral duties amongst the German, the Swedish, the Dutch. But when we look at his sermons, they were centered on the death of Christ for sinners, imputed righteousness, the sinner being reckoned a saint, and unlike Zinzendorf, the assurance of these things was not located inside yourself. So tying Muhlenberg, as some will, to these pietists, I believe, is incorrect. And then the last charge, I think, is helpful for all of us here. This author, 
goes after Muhlenberg and says, of, and of all of these things, also, he wasn't original. It's a criticism on the basis that he didn't do much that was innovative or, or edgy. The argument is essentially he was boring. If you'll permit me a brief sidebar, uh, a few years back, uh, the Lutheran Church uh, was charged um, by Mark Knoll, that historian that I mentioned earlier, as being, quote, remarkably unremarkable. Basically, we were taken to task for not mobilizing, not innovating, basically being boring and not American. And while in human terms we have no remarkable elements, uh, big tent revivals, marches on Washington, uh, laser shows, um, (laughs) although we do have a float in the Rose Parade. And I I don't know many denominations that do that, so take that, Methodists. Um, You guys get one, then we'll, we'll talk. Nevertheless, that is partly what makes us remarkable, in that we are unremarkable. And God seems to be like this, a savior in a manger, a king killed with common thieves, forgiveness coming in water, wine, and bread. But nevertheless, the claim that Muhlenberg was not original, nothing remarkable, shouldn't cause us any hesitation in welcoming his contributions to American Lutheranism. Okay, we're going to pause right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Let's face it, it's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing The Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide.
Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Warning, friends don't let other friends become pietists. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we truly depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One of the buttons says, uh, join our crew. The other says, donate. When you uh, join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. For instance, uh, our crew members get access to um, our uh, digital publishing books as they come available. And we're, you know, we're trying you know, to get one out about once every month, month and a half. So, And this month, uh, for the month of June, we got uh, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, fantastic, fantastic resource. It's a VIP walkthrough, the Gospel of Matthew. You will learn things about the Gospel of Matthew you did not know. And on top of it, Dr. Paul Kretzman, well, he's been dead for a long time. As a result of it, he's not influenced by silly, silly uh, modernity, post-modernity, or any of that other stuff. He is he. We can say with certainty that he has died in the faith and was a faithful uh, expositor of God's Word and you want to know what it's you know what it well sounds like well re, you want to know what uh, a good exposition of the bible looks like well <clears throat> read this commentary and you'll find out so you join our crew and I'll send you a copy of that I'll send you an email so that you can download your copy of uh, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the gospel of Matthew of course if you'd like to make a one time contribution you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, let's continue with Dr. Van Voorhis's uh, fourth lecture on the history of pietism. Fascinating stuff. Here we go. Now, 
if Muhlenberg was uh, and is often called the father of American Lutheranism, reinforcements were coming. The occasion was the growing oppressive measures taken by the Saxon German government in controlling church related affairs. The Orthodox, in many ways, had made a kind of Faustian deal with the Saxon state and other German states. One pastor, Martin Steffen, while studying in Halle, he was convinced of the truths of the gospel as presented in the Book of Concord. And those Saxon magistrates, those who we talked about last week as, as emphasizing doctrinal unity at any cost, harassed Steffen, who came under attack from both the Saxon government, from the so-called rationalists, and the pietists. And so he formed a community of some 700 pastors and other confessing Lutherans to explore a possible immigration to America. And inventions have a funny way of changing the course of history. Rather than sail to the East Coast, as most settlers from Germany had done, Stefan benefited from a recent technological advancement, the steam engine. This allowed new settlers to avoid the overpopulated eastern seaboard and travel instead, relatively cheaply, up the Mississippi. And so this new group of confessional Lutherans did what most good Lutherans do. They go to the Midwest. <laughs> now, while the history of Stephen is significant for the growth of confessional Lutheranism in America, uh, he eventually is deposed. That's another story. His successor was none other than uh, C.F.W. Walther. But despite all this, the tumult continued on the East Coast. Despite the work of Muhlenberg, like an unchecked cancer, the Lutheran church on the East Coast turned its attention to what Ernst Valentin Loescher, he was that 18th century critic of pietism, the, quote, Lutheran church on the East Coast turned to exactly what he said more than a century prior they would do. They turned to that. What is that? A fascination with the millennium and the end of days. Let us hear from Luther, writing in 1718. He says, Wherever the zeal for piety has been misused and pushed without Christian discretion, millennialism has always broken out. Another quote, Such presentations of millennialism have forcefully captured many men's powers of imagination. The pietists have regarded promoting millennialism as a powerful means of promoting piety. Read, look busy, Jesus is coming. And therefore, have protected and pushed millennialism in every manner and way. Where this evil, where this evil has taken root, one regards the entire Bible with, millennial, 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 with eyes looking towards the millennium. I changed that for my own sake. They plunge into Kabbalistic and magical depths. And even Spainer wrote, the love for millennialism, when it once takes possession in a heart, so captivates people that they can't restrain themselves from always speaking of it. Yeah, wow. 
That's something else. That pietism, you wouldn't, and I said this week one, pietism and a peculiar eschatology, doctrine of the end days, are almost always tied together. And when we find churches that are aberrations or perversions from historic Christian uh, doctrine, eschatology is usually right up there towards the top of their what-we-believe statements. Oh, I've got one more quote from Lusher. He says this, It has been since the beginning, since the beginning, our itching ears move from innovation to innovation, from faithfulness to the historic faith to the bizarre. 1718, he was saying, this is where pietism is leading. This might not seem obvious, and we can write off the Harold Campings, and of course, that's way out there, but also the Hal Lindsay's, the Tim LaHaye's, these other relatively popular preachers who do have a very peculiar eschatology. The doctrine of the end times, as I mentioned is, it, before, is very brief in the Lutheran Church. On that handout that I gave you, I have given you what I believe is the shortest article in the Augsburg Confession, and that is the one on the end times. Read it. It's really short. We don't have much of a doctrine of the end times at all. If you want to know more, ask the pastors. The first radical pietist millennialist was a contemporary of Franck and Zinzendorf, and I just want to mention him briefly. His name was Johann Albrecht Bengel. Bengel was trained at Halle, uh, but soon moved in his own direction, away from Halle pietism. He started focusing on the book of Revelation. He wrote three commentaries. He claimed that it was the most difficult book to understand, but also, therefore, the easiest. I'm, I'm just the guy read, telling you what they wrote. I, don't, I can't understand that. But this is what he said. This is what he spent his life doing. His motivations were likely a product of the turmoil of his day. <clears throat> Remember, when he's living, uh, this is the invasion. Uh, you know, Louis XIV is, is coming into Württemberg where he lives. Um, you have various battles with the Turks to the east. Uh, the War of Spanish Secession. It's fun, but talk about it later. Uh, all of this is happening in his context. And so it might make sense that, that Bengal would consider the, the fragility of life and look for a utopian answer in the pages of Scripture. So what did he say? Christ would return in either 1836 or 1837. I mean, at least he's kind of broad there. Not, not May 21st. I mean, he's given us two whole years. Um, it, didn't, it didn't happen. What is interesting is that when we look at printing records, his commentaries on Revelation sold like the German equivalent of hotcakes. They, people hungered for these things. Those itching ears wanted more things on the book of Revelation. They found a very warm reception, and then eventually they would make their way to America. Finally, and in America, I want to touch on two people. And, and these two people were actually brought to my attention uh, by one of the few people who's working uh, historically and responsibly on pietism. Uh, he's also the new president of Concordia Theological Seminary, uh, and that's Larry Rast, Lawrence Rast. If you, if you see his name by anything on pietism, uh, it, it is good stuff. 
And he did his master's and his PhD on these two individuals that I briefly want to introduce to you. The first is J. George Schmucker, and the second is Joseph Seiss. I'll hit the major beats for you. Schmucker, 1771 to 1854. He was ordained in 1792, and he thought that perhaps Napoleon was the Antichrist. What do we see? We see this, this pattern. When things are tumultuous, when there are signs of, 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 of imminent doom, when there are wars, when there are earthquakes, when there are floods, where do we go running? Or where does much of the church, where does it go running? Book of Revelation. It's got the answers. And this is exactly what Schmucker did. He uh, had a work called the Lutherish Magazine. And this was uh, that translated Lutheran Magazine. Uh, and he would, <coughs> just for those of you that don't know the German, and this is where he would have a wide, uh, uh, um, a large number of subscribers. And so his thought could hit the people that wouldn't necessarily be at church or fall asleep during the sermon. Or This is what people were reading. It was his magazine. And what was the major theme in this magazine? The book of Revelation and the coming apocalypse. He also wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation, and he also dated Christ's return, 1850. He, he, was, he was familiar with the Millerites. If you, if you know about the Millerites, the Seventh-day Adventists, they were doing the same stuff. In the, in the 19th century, was filled with herald campings. Everyone was proclaiming uh, the date that Christ would return. But here's where this ties into what we're doing now. His commentary on the book of Revelation and his work in the Lutheran magazine warned about this coming rapture because he said that there is a stratified nature of heaven. He writes, it is not enough to simply have the imputed righteousness of Christ. That might get you into the foyer of heaven, right? Cheap coffee served, nothing much. That's... that's but you, if you want to really make it into heaven, if you make it into good heaven, you know, <clears throat> go to the Kaza heaven, you know, through the gates, you need to diligently prepare. And those people were those of a certain Christian character who, and he lists off a number of things, and one of them is those who attend Sunday school. So we're safe. We're, we're good. <laughs> that, the other stuff I'm not so sure. That earlier prediction by Loescher that pietism would lead to an abandonment of the doctrine of justification and the tickling of ears with esoteric speculation and utopian visions seems dead on. The second character, briefly, was Joseph Seiss, 1823 to 1904. Dr. Rast has suggested that in the second half of the 19th century, from about 1850 on, just about every controversy in the Lutheran Church in America is involved somewhere or another with Seiss. He is around all of these controversies. And perhaps no other clergyman published as much as Seiss. He attempted to, he, to show that his own millennial thought followed Article 17 of the Augsburg Confession, that, which I've, I've given to you in the handout. 
I think what that handout does, I think it rules out, uh, and Rast has gone on to show this, that it actually rules out Seiss's uh, apocalypticism. Um, as for his view on, on the rapture um, and his vacillations between postmillennialism and premillennialism, we can talk about this privately. Um, the premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, rapture, pre-trib, post-trib, if, if, consider yourself blessed if you don't understand any of this. Uh, I may have done a disservice to you on the back side of your sheet. Um, <clears throat> I've given you a, this is a simple graph. You want to see some, I mean, look in the Ryrie Study Bible, man. That thing is just filled with things. Nevertheless, talk about that later. And why don't you do that with the pastors? Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, Seiss, a highly influential figure, imported this doctrine into the Lutheran Church and once again finds a wide audience. Seiss, however, did not give a date. But he did ask the important question, who gets raptured and who gets left behind? And once again, we see the doctrine of the end times eclipse the doctrine of justification. For it is the truly committed, it is the truly obedient saints that are raptured. There are different classes of Christians. So why is this, a, this brief foray a good stopping point for our look at pietism? Well, the revival of, of this eschatological thinking <clears throat> marks uh, one of the key points and reminds us back to that first lecture of one of the key points of early pietism, that it too focused on a particular kind of eschatological thought. And so we see a parallel. <clears throat> it also marks the point where many aspects of Lutheranism were Americanized in the worst sense. And so it makes sense that we would go there, and then, as I mentioned later, we'll talk about the American church, which, as Mark Knoll has said, has its roots not in Puritanism or frontier revivals, but in 17th century Lutheran pietism. So in conclusion, <clears throat> we've discussed the roots of pietism and its markers. We've traced this through Halle and into the New World, looking at the characters from Spener to Zinzendorf. And while these talks have been short, I don't want you to think that this is simple stuff. The basic thrust is relatively simple. We can see the general rejection or adaptation of confessional Lutheranism. And while there are common themes, there is a very diverse group of people. For a group that focused on the internal and experiential, it is always hard to find conformity of thought. There is no singular document that spells out what pietism is. I've done my best to outline the major players and ideas. What we can say from this historical overview, and from a glance around the church in America today, and even the Lutheran church, even the LCMS, is that when we unhinge ourselves from the external, from creeds and confessions, when we place our beliefs in the esoteric or squarely inside our own hearts and bellies, not only do we find historical and theological aberrations, but we lose sight, I believe, of the real source of our assurance. Thank you very much. Well, there are probably uh, a number of questions, um, and we can sort of take broad, broad questions, uh, however you, um, you want to go. There's, please wait for uh, Jim's uh, microphone. 
and I'll do my best to give you answers. Hey, it's Alice Elwell. Hey, it's Dr. Dan Van Voorhis. <laughs> um, Bob and I were talking about Pennsylvania the other day, and you mentioned that it was uh, homebred um, dissension, that religious yeah. dissension was, was okay. Yeah, it was set up as a colony for dissenters. So I where mean, does the Quaker movement come into Pennsylvania? They, they are dissenters. So right? they... So they, they moved to Pennsylvania as well. But they so, weren't the only dissenters. No, no. It is. I mean, it's, it's all over. The, I mean, dissenting groups of all stripes go to Pennsylvania because that's the place where you could get away from that sort of rigid Puritanism. Uh, and I'm talking 17th century here, uh, the early colonies, Massachusetts Bay Colony being the one in particular. Well, and we'll talk about that when we talk about American evangelicalism because, uh, that, that, oh, those characters. Next question. We've got a couple. <clears throat> the spelling of Lo- was it Losher? Oh yeah, I should. I I tried to give out these handouts. Uh, his name is Ernst Valentine without an E. L O E S C H E R. L O E S C H E R. And there's a book that's actually in print today. Um, some some strange fellows at. Um, uh, not strange fellows, some great fellows uh, down in Texas have translated uh, something called the Complete Works of Timothy Verinus, V-E-R-I-N-U-S. Uh, it's a great work. It's him in a very fair way uh, looking at uh, pietism. Uh, it's, it, it actually is very, very fair-minded. So Lusher is his name, and that is one of the best works uh, on pietism in, in the 18th century. Uh, so uh, thank you very much. Good stuff. All right. Um, we've reached the end of our light edition of Fighting for the Faith. I hope you find these uh, uh, singular topics to be helpful. And, you know, I'm trying to find a range of topics that I think would be useful for everybody. Anyway, um, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, you know, this is listener-supported radio. You know the drill. Anyway, visit our website. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and, uh, you know, and help support us financially so that we can continue to uh, meet budget and uh, pay our bills so we can keep doing what we do here. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. Grace and mercy. One by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>